The reading is from Genesis chapter 49, um, verse 28 to 50, verse 26. All these are the twelve tribes of Israel, and this is what their father said to them when he blessed them, giving each the blessing appropriate to him. Then he gave them these instructions. I am about to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave in the field of Ephron the Hittite, the cave in the field of Machpelah near Mamre in Canaan, which Abraham bought along with the field as a burial place from Ephron the Hittite. There Abraham and his wife Sarah were buried. There Isaac and his wife Rebekah were buried. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave in it were bought from the Hittites. When Jacob had finished giving instructions to his sons, he drew up his feet up into his bed, breathed his last, and was gathered to his people. Joseph threw himself on his father and wept over him and kissed him. Then Joseph directed the physicians in his service to embalm his father Israel. So the physicians embalmed him, taking a full 40 days, for that was the time required for embalming, and the Egyptians mourned for him 70 days. When the days of mourning had passed, Joseph said to Pharaoh's court, If I have found favour in your eyes, speak to Pharaoh from, for me. Tell him, My father made me swear an oath and said, I am about to die. Bury me in the tomb I dug for myself in the land of Canaan. Now let me go up and bury my father, then I will return. Pharaoh said, Go up and bury your father, as he made you swear to do. So Joseph went up to bury his father. All Pharaoh's officials accompanied him, the dignitaries of his court and all the dignitaries of Egypt. Besides all the members of Joseph's household and his brothers and those belonging to his father's household, only their children and their flocks and herds were left in Goshen. Chariots and horsemen also went up with him. It was a very large company. When they reached the threshing floor of Atad near the Jordan, they lamented loudly and bitterly. And there Joseph observed a seven-day period of mourning for his father. When the Canaanites who lived there saw the mourning at the threshing floor of Atad, they said, The Egyptians are holding a solemn ceremony of mourning. That is why that place near the Jordan is called Abel Mizraim. So Joseph's sons did as he commanded them. They carried him to the land of Canaan, and buried him in the cave in the field of Machpelah near Mamre, which Abraham had bought along with the field as a burial place from Ephron the Hittite. After burying his father, Joseph returned to Egypt together with his brothers and all the others who had gone with him to bury his father. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, What if Joseph holds a grudge against us? and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him. 
So they sent word to work to Joseph, saying, Your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you are to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. When their message came to him, Joseph wept. His brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. But Joseph said to them, Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then, don't be afraid. I will provide for you and for your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. Joseph stayed in Egypt, along with all his father's family. He lived 110 years and saw the third generation of Ephraim's children. Also, the children of Machir, son of Manasseh, were placed at birth on Joseph's knees. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will surely come to your aid and take you up out of this land, to the land he promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. And Joseph made the Israelites swear an oath and said, God will surely come to your aid and then you must carry my bones up from this place. So Joseph died at the age of 110, and after they embalmed him, he was placed in a coffin in Egypt. Thank you, Sarah. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this immensely moving passage of Scripture. We pray that you would teach us, and we pray that you would move us to worship you. In Jesus' name, amen. The funeral was over. It had been on just the greatest scale imaginable. Pharaoh and all his court had been there with all the gold and the ceremony and the grandeur that always accompanied him. The congregation was huge, and as Jacob's body was laid to rest. There was such great weeping and mourning. So great was this weeping and mourning that the locals renamed the place of the funeral. They called it Abel Mizraim, the mourning of the Egyptians. Such a fitting send-off. But as the um, 11 sons of Jacob returned to Egypt from the funeral, their thoughts were troubled. Now, of course, they just buried their father. But as well, um, on the other hand, it had been such a beautiful ceremony. Um, When we experience uh, an occasion like that, we often have that sense of uh, conflicting emotion. But there was another emotion fluttering in these brothers. Fear. Once they arrived back uh, in Egypt, they gathered together to lay their fears out on the table. In uh, chapter 50, verse 15, we read, When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, 
What if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? Now that Jacob is dead, they are terrified about what happens next. Would Joseph's forgiveness suddenly expire? We're going to return to this bit at the end. But positioned at the very end of Genesis, we as readers are also invited to lay our fears on the table. As this book ends, as Jacob dies, we also fear for what might happen next. Throughout this book, I know we've only uh, looked at the last bit, but throughout this book, God has made big promises. Back in chapter 3, he promised that someone would come to undo the curse of sin. Later, he promised to Abraham's family that they would be blessed and that through them, blessing would flow to the whole world. But has all of this hope died with Jacob? His sons, as we've seen over the past few weeks, have been a jealous, self-serving bunch of sinners. His favourite son, Joseph, at all appearances, is now an Egyptian. So like Joseph's brothers, we fear about what might happen next. Uh, And of course, um, the beauty of these great narratives in scripture is that these truths just jump off the page and into our own experience. Who among us hasn't feared for what might happen next? Um, The forces of sin, tragedy and chance, they always seem to be pulling our lives towards what we dread. That inescapable whirlwind of fate drags us in and threatens to pull us under. The future is often so vast and unknown that we dare not even think about it. Sometimes we don't want to turn the page. But in chapters 48, 49 and 50 of Genesis, find reassurance for the future. Find the antidote uh, to the fear of what happens next. We're going to look at uh, these chapters one at a time under three different headings. Firstly, let's rewind from the, uh, the events of chapter 50. And in four, chapter 48, we have the true story Grandad says goodbye. Um, You'll help it if you've got your own Bible. Always good to bring one along if you own one, um, if you can follow along. Last week we heard about how Jacob, along with all his family and all his possessions, climbed up onto some carts and travelled from Canaan to Egypt to escape a famine. The family was saved. But 17 years passes and one day... Joseph hears the news that he's been dreading. Your father is ill. Now, bear in mind that at this point, Jacob is 147 years old. So Joseph has a good idea what this means. He calls the boys in from the garden and travels to see his father one last time. Now, understandably, Jacob has been lying back on his bed But um, hearing the news that Joseph is coming, he strengthens himself, he he gathers his strength and he sits up to meet him. He knows the significance of this last meeting with his son. And there are words that Joseph needs to hear. Chapter uh, 48, verses 3 to 4, record those words. Jacob said to Joseph, 
God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan. And there he blessed me and said to me, I'm going to make you fruitful and increase your numbers. I will make you a community of peoples and I will give this land as an everlasting possession to your descendants after you. Here, Jacob is reminding Joseph of God's promise to bless him, just as he promised to bless Abraham before him. But he's highlighting one particular element of this promise. I wonder if you picked that up. He's going to be fruitful. His numbers are going to increase. He's going to be a community of peoples. The land will be given to his descendants. Jacob is reminding Joseph of God's promise to bless Abraham, Isaac and Jacob with a big family. But what is going to happen next? What's going to happen when we turn the page? After the death of Jacob, what happens to this promise? Is Joseph going to have a part in it? He's the prime minister of Egypt. He's got an Egyptian wife. His children have been born and grown up in Egypt. Jacob recognises this danger. And so he makes a symbolic gesture to reaffirm that though Joseph has been an Egyptian for most of his life, Joseph, and especially his children, are part of Jacob's family. And he does this by upgrading their inheritance. They're his grandchildren, um, but he's going to bless them as if they were his own children. He's going to bless them with a share of the promised land. He gives them equal status with their uncles. So at this point, this frail old saint, he lays his failing eyes on the two small shapes on either side of his son Joseph. Are these who I think they are, son? That's right, dad. This is Manasseh, my oldest. This is Ephraim, my youngest. And it's not hard to imagine just the tears of joy running down Jacob's wrinkled cheeks as he embraces and kisses these grandchildren of his favourite son. And even in the middle of this embrace, uh, even as he bounces these kids on his knees, he, he turns to Joseph and he can scarcely believe the grace that God has shown to him. Verse 11, I never expected to see your face again. And now God has allowed me to see your children too. What joy, what what praise, even on his deathbed. And now it's time to make the upgraded inheritance official. So um, reaffirmed as part of his family, Jacob blesses his grandchildren. He's sitting on the edge of his bed. And uh, as is the custom, Joseph comes along and places Manasseh, the eldest, on his right and Ephraim the youngest on his left. But the thing about Jacob is that he's always been a bit of a cheeky one. And uh, if anything, this uh, mischievous streak, I'm told, only increases with age. Now, I'm sure none of our older people are like that. But um, So what Jacob does is he crosses his arms before he blesses them. He puts his right hand on the head of the youngest, Ephraim, and he puts his left hand on the head of the eldest, Manasseh. And I'm just wondering, I think this is right, perhaps Jacob is looking back 
to his family history. He's thinking about um, Ishmael and Isaac, and certainly he's thinking about how things worked out with him and his elder brother. In this family, we do things differently. And uh, of course, the goody two-shoes Joseph tries to object, but uh, this is Jacob's family, and this is a reminder for Joseph of the family history which he is a part of. And so we read the blessing in verse 15. Then he blessed Joseph and said, May the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked faithfully, the God who has been my shepherd all my life to this day, the angel who has delivered me from all harm, may he bless these boys. May they be called by my name and the names of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, and may they greatly increase on the earth. As the book of Genesis ends, and as Jacob dies, we may fear what happens next. God promised Abraham this big family, but is it going to come to nothing? No, because as granddad says goodbye, he passes on this promised blessing to his sons and to his grandchildren. Joseph will play a part in this growing big family of God. And when we fear what happens next, we can be reassured by this too, if we are God's people. Because nothing can cause this promise of God to crumble. Not our own sin, not tragedy, not the twists of chance. Nothing can derail the promise of God. We read in Galatians chapter 3. Understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. When we put our faith in Jesus, we become children of Abraham. We become children of Jacob. We are also adopted into this family of God. And so this promise of a blessed big family is our inheritance too. So whatever your fears, whatever your worries, whatever your situation, there's one thing that a Christian can be certain of. Whatever happens next, you're going to be surrounded by a big family. Time marches relentlessly on and significant life stages pass by. Uh, Teenagers, they go away to university. Children get a bit older and go to school. Friends move away uh, because of work. Um, Unwanted singleness continues and continues. A spouse dies. There's a dreadful fear that All of these things end in loneliness. There's this dreaded question that sometimes we ask, do all the twists of fate end up in isolation? Not for the Christian. Not for the Christian. Whatever happens next, you are loved, you are valued, you are welcomed in the family of God. Over all things, over every sin, over every tragedy, over every seeming twist of fate, God is in sovereign control and he is bringing together a people and peoples in sweeter unity than even the best earthly reunion. Our story, what happens next for us, what's over the page, is joyful company 
loving embrace and belonging as part of the family of God. Why wait till the end of the story? We are part of this family now. So let's live like that. Let's make sure that the hurting are comforted. Let's make sure that the lonely are embraced. Let's make sure that the stranger is welcomed in. We take our lead from the head of the family, Jesus. And he has given us quite the example of love to follow, hasn't he? What happens next? Family. Let's uh, turn the page to chapter 49. Here, uh, the moving narrative continues, this time with Jacob and his sons. This is, Dad says goodbye. If you cast your eyes over this chapter in your Bibles, Jacob's last words to his sons aren't exactly what we might expect. Instead, what we find is a prophecy about what's going to happen to each of them in the future. This is Jacob speaking not merely just his own wishes, He's actually prophesying, speaking the very words of God. And so he calls for his sons, gather round so that I can tell you what will happen to you in days to come. After everything we've read, it's not uh, that surprising that the greatest praise, the greatest blessing is reserved for Joseph. Naphtali before him only gets one verse, whereas Joseph's blessing uh, extends through five verses. But I don't want us to go through each son in turn. I just want us to look at Reuben. In verses three and four, let's look at what Reuben's future holds for him. Jacob said, Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, the first sign of my strength, excelling in honor, excelling in power, Turbulent as the waters, you will no longer excel, for you went up onto your father's bed, onto my couch, and defiled it. So Jacob forgotten that um, you're supposed to give the good news first. Instead, he begins with Reuben, his firstborn, and the future is not bright. Uh, As the firstborn, his honour and his power should have, in the normal course of things, excelled over that of his other brothers. He'd normally have the greater inheritance, the greater authority, the greater responsibility in family life. But Jacob prophesies that Reuben has lost this. Uh, Did did you hear that when I I read it then? Excelling in honour, excelling in power, turbulent as the waters, you will no longer excel. That is, you'll no longer excel over your other brothers. He'll no longer be first because he's turbulent as the waters. This doesn't mean that he's kind of emotionally unstable. Rather, it means that like rising and crashing waves, his passions, his surging passions are completely out of control. Uh, This is illustrated in uh, chapter 36, to which uh, Jacob refers here, where he slept with one of his father's sort of wives. He could no longer excel, and as far as we know, he didn't. No king, no priest, no uh, prophet, no judge ever came from the tribe of Reuben. The future looked bleak for him. But to be honest, the future looked 
pretty bleak for most of Jacob's sons that we read in verse 49. Uh, Just to list a few, Simeon and Levi are going to be scattered because of their violence. Issachar is described as a scrawny donkey who's going to be enslaved. Dan is a snake. Gad will be attacked. This hardly seems like the future that Abraham's family was promised. As well as a big family, Abraham's family was promised that they would be blessed and be a blessing to the whole world. But here, Jacob lies on his deathbed. Here, the book of Genesis ends. And it looks like that promise is just going to come to nothing. We fear that this bright future will never come to pass. Until that is, we read what Jacob said to Judah. Now, um, you may remember Judah if you've been following along in this series. Judah was a relational, moral and spiritual failure. He sold his brother, deceived his dad, he uh, raised evil children, he slept with his daughter-in-law, he uh, called for her to be executed. Judah, of all the brothers, does not seem like the person we'd turn to if we were looking for a bright future. However, look at verses 10 to 12. Again, Jacob said, The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he to whom it belongs shall come, and the obedience of the nations shall be his. He will tether his donkey to a vine, his colt to the choicest branch. He will wash his garments in wine, his robes in the blood of grapes. His eyes will be darker than wine, his teeth whiter than milk. Here is the promise of a future king to come. This uh, future king to come. He's not just going to be king. He's not just going to be kind of like the first among these brothers. He's not just going to be king of Israel. No, it says there that the obedience of the nation shall be his. This promised king is going to rule over the whole world. What else do we see about this king? Well, we see that he's going to be the king of an abundant kingdom. Um, when, you, when you park your car, it would be quite foolish and strange to park it on a, a marble driveway, wouldn't it? You'd worry that you'd ruin the marble. Uh, that's kind of the image that we get in verse 11. We see that this king is going to tether his donkey to a vine. He's going to tether his colt to the choicest branch. In those days, you don't have cars, you don't have marble. But if you're going to tie your donkey to something, you tie it to like a rubbish branch or a hedge or a bramble, something that you don't mind if the donkey kind of kicks up a fuss and pulls it out. But in this kingdom, there are going to be so many vines, so many valuable wine-producing vines that doesn't matter. Just tie your donkey to it. It doesn't matter if the donkey pulls it out. There's going to be plenty of other ones. That's the sort of kingdom this is going to be like. And this abundance of this kingdom becomes even more clear in the other verses. Wine is going to be even more common than water. Um, this king isn't going to wash his garments in water. Oh, there's, there's some wine here. We've got loads of it. I might as well wash in that. Um, there's going to be so much wine to drink that this king's eyes are going to turn uh, red. Um, that's exaggeration with, the, uh, uh, with the, the wine that he's drunk. Again, this isn't um, 
commending excess uh, consumption, but rather it's pointing to excess availability of wine. And there's going to be so much milk, precious milk in those days, um, in this kingdom, that his teeth are going to be brightly white, as if he's had the best whitening treatment imaginable. It's an abundant kingdom. So many vines, so much wine, so much milk. And it's also an everlasting kingdom. The scepter will never depart from Judah. Now, I think we know who these verses refer to. Of course, these verses refer to our King Jesus, descended from the line of Judah. And doesn't this challenge the impression that so many people get when they think about what happens when Jesus is in charge? So often we might think that when Jesus is in charge, life is all about rules. Life is going to be really strict. I'm, going to be, um, I'm not going to have any freedom to do what I want. But here we see that the kingdom of Jesus is abundance. The kingdom of Jesus is life and freedom and joy. And this is all promised way back in Genesis. So as Jacob died, he didn't fear what would happen next. He died secure in the knowledge that God's promise of blessing to the nations would come through Judah. So as this chapter closes, we read in verse 33. When Jacob had finished giving instructions to his sons, he drew his feet up up into the bed, breathed his last, and was gathered to his people. When we fear about what happens next, when we fear to turn the page... Be reassured by this. Day by day we personally face the curse of sin in this world. The curse that came when Adam and Eve fell. That looks like death, it looks like disease, it looks like difficulty. And not just on a personal scale, but on the worldwide nation scale, we see the curse of sin. What do we think the G7 are talking about in Cornwall? They're talking about sin. They're talking about the effect of the curse. Sin, tragedy and seeming chance seem to be dragging this world deeper and deeper and deeper into this curse. But behind it all, behind every twist of fate, God is in sovereign control over everything. So what happens next? If you're one of his people... Not curse, blessing, abundant blessing under the reign of King Jesus. If you're worried about what happens next, reassure yourself of this. This is where it is all leading under God's sovereign care. Let's turn to chapter 50 now. Dad and son go home. Jacob has, Jacob has died and Joseph is distraught. This is the father who he loved so much, who he had such a treasured close relationship with in his childhood. This is the father who he lost as he was sold into slavery in Egypt. This is the father who he miraculously in God's grace regained as they were reunited under God's sovereign plan. And now he's gone. 
And Joseph is just distraught by this. He throws himself on his father. He weeps and he kisses him. At this point, it's good to remind ourselves that these are real people in real history. And so we might think, okay, let's go to Egypt and we can see the pyramids there. Which pyramid is Jacob buried in? Are we going to go there and see a stone with Jacob's name on it? No. Uh, Joseph goes to Pharaoh and, uh, and says to him, my, my father made me swear an oath. He made me swear that he wouldn't be buried in Egypt, but that he would be taken back, back home to Canaan and buried there where Abraham was buried, where Sarah was buried, where Isaac was buried, where Rebekah was buried, where all his family had their graves. Jacob made Joseph swear, take me back there when I die. I want to go back home. We get the first initial sense that Pharaoh could be a problem here. The very fact that Joseph has to go to Pharaoh and ask for permission raises alarm bells. Is Pharaoh going to stop this from happening? Is Pharaoh going to say, no, Jacob can't be buried back home in Canaan. I don't want to lose you, Joseph. You can't go back home. I fear that you may never come back. We fear, actually, that God's big prom- another of God's big promises to Abraham, Abraham isn't going to be met. As well as promising a big family, as well as promising blessing and blessing through him to the nations, Abraham's family had been promised a home, a land, the land of Canaan, that promised land. But at this point, Pharaoh is swayed and he allows Jacob to go and be buried back home. And then when it comes for Joseph to die, later we see from verse 22 onwards, Again, which, which pyramid is Joseph buried in? None of them. He saw, uh, well, he saw many, many years. He lived 110 years. He saw the third generation of his grandchildren. And then when it came time for him to die, he acknowledged that, yes, he was initially going to be buried in Egypt, but he made plans for the future. Verse 24 of chapter 50. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will surely come to your aid and take you up out of this land to the land he promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. And Joseph made the Israelites swear an oath and said, God will surely come to your aid and then you must carry my bones up from this place. We've already seen that Joseph was very much an Egyptian He'd spent almost the entirety of his life in that country. He had an Egyptian wife. He had children that had spent their entire lives in Egypt. But he knew that it wasn't his home. He knew that God had promised the family of Abraham a land that they could call their own. And he knew that though there was going to be difficult times ahead, one day they would return there. In Hebrews chapter 11... We read, uh, let me find that, Hebrews chapter 11. We looked at this just a uh, couple of weeks ago in the evening. Hebrews 11, verse 22. By faith, Joseph, 
when his end was near, spoke about the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt and gave instructions concerning the burial of his bones. He knew by faith that the exodus would come. And it did. But a still greater exodus was yet ahead of them. An exodus not just out of slavery in Egypt, but out of slavery to sin. All these, uh, all these ancients, they knew that they weren't just awaiting a home in the earthly land of Canaan. They were awaiting a heavenly home as well. Again, in Hebrews chapter 11. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. For he has prepared a city for them. When we fear for what happens next, again, be reassured by this. At the moment, we've said it many times before, we're feeling in this country more and more like strangers, less and less at home. As morality shifts, as laws move further and further away from their biblical basis, as Christians are looked upon more and more as the bad guys rather than the good guys. We, we feel, the, we grieve over the sense that we don't belong here. We don't belong here. And yet, there is a place that we do belong. God has promised us a home, not just in an earthly kingdom, but in a heavenly one. Not just for a temporary time, but forever. You know that sense when you get back into, into your house after a really long day where so much has gone wrong and you just you open that door and peace and calm hits you. Heaven is going to be like that magnified by infinity. We have a home waiting for us in the presence of Jesus. He will open that door, welcome us in and there will be such rejoicing. We will be home. Over all the twists of sin, tragedy and seeming chance, the sovereign Lord is working this destiny out for his people. He will bring us home. Let's come back to where we started. The funeral finished. Joseph's brothers had laid their fears out on the table. They were worried that Joseph's forgiveness was only temporary. So in their kind of scheming way, they present an apology to Joseph. And how does he respond? What is over the page? Verse 19. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. Now, of course, with like the narrow focused lens, this good that God has accomplished is the saving of the brothers. There was, there was a famine in Canaan. And because of the evil that these brothers did to Joseph, God worked out the good of the saving of the brothers. But then we can zoom out further and see that because of the evil that the brothers did, God worked out a greater salvation, the saving of the Egyptians. 
Without Joseph being there, they wouldn't have seen uh, themselves through this famine either. But as we see this verse in the context of the whole of Genesis, we're welcomed in to address our fears for the whole of life and the whole of history. Every sin, every twist of tragedy and fate, God is sovereign over it. And he is working it for good, the saving of many lives. He is bringing about his good promises, a big family. He is bringing about his good promises, a a home. He is bringing out his good promises, blessing for the whole world as Jesus is lifted up as king forever. Uh, And I just find this so encouraging. Whatever you're worried about at the moment, whatever fear, whatever you might think is over the page for you, know that God is working these things out for your good, if you are one of his people. As I close, there's one objection that someone might give listening to this. I'm not worried about what's over the page. I don't think about my future. I just live in the moment. I don't think that's wise. Yesterday, um, many of you, some of you at least, will have been watching the football game, uh, Denmark versus Finland. And there we saw a 29-year-old man, a popular man, loved by many, A man with a loving family, a man with two kids, a man seemingly at the peak of physical condition, in a moment collapse on the field. His heart stopped beating, he stopped breathing, just like that. Now we praise God that it seems like he's making a good recovery, but it was just awful to watch awful to watch and what a sobering reminder for every single one of us that the next page can hit us at any moment and we need to be ready for it those promises of a big family those promises of blessing under Jesus those promises of a home they are for Christians if you're not a Christian I would encourage you to be ready for what happens next, now. Take a moment and just confess your sins before our Lord and ask him to make you ready for that day. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your sovereign control. Thank you that whatever happens next, we can be sure that you keep your promises. Thank you that we can look forward to a big family, blessing under the reign of Jesus, and a time when we will be home. Lord, we pray that this hope, this great certain hope, would be all of ours. Thank you for the cross of Jesus that has made it possible. In his name we pray. Amen.